Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, January 10th, we are studying Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. The angel Gabriel appears to the aged priest Zechariah with good news concerning a son who will be born to him and to his barren wife, Elizabeth. Help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today. We have with us regular guest, Pastor James Preuss. Pastor Preuss serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's good to be here. Pastor Preuss, in terms of context this morning, there's not a ton of narrative context. The first four verses of Luke's Gospel are his introduction where he speaks to Theophilus personally. So where we're picking up today is where the narrative itself starts. But maybe maybe it's just an introductory question. Why, why start here? Each of the Gospels starts in a slightly different place. You know, Matthew gives us the genealogy and then tells about the angel coming to Joseph. And Mark skips all the way to Jesus' adulthood. And John gives us that prologue, and then he's in Jesus' adulthood here or as well. But Luke alone is the one that gives us some of the, the pre-birth narratives of both John and Jesus. So maybe that's one way we can get started in this conversation is, is what's the significance of Luke starting his gospel account in this place? Well, Luke is an historian, and that's what you get in the first four verses uh, of, of Luke's gospel. He's giving him uh, a compiled narrative so that he would have certainty concerning the things that he had been taught. Uh, so the, the nativity and the enunciation of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus, uh, no one takes more time uh, discussing these uh, than Luke. Uh, and John is a very important figure. You, so you, you talk about how the different Gospels begin in different places, but they all do begin with John. I mean, maybe not begin, begin, but John's in the beginning of all of them. Uh, you mentioned Mark uh, begins in Jesus' adulthood. Well, it starts with John the Baptist, right? right. So, uh, and it's very interesting too because you know why is Matthew the first gospel listen, uh, listed? Uh, I'm not quite sure why. I suppose the ancients thought that that was the first one written. That's generally what I believe too. Because why should I disbelieve the the ancients on that? Uh, but uh, you know, the the Old Testament ends in Malachi chapter four saying, Behold, I send uh, Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And then you have Mark begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ of God, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, and then has John appeared. So John's right there. Uh, in John, in John's epistle, or John's gospel, I mean, uh, yes, it begins with that prologue, but very quickly on, after the word becomes flesh, it introduces John the Baptist. Hmm. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, you have the, uh, yes, you have the genealogy of Jesus, the story of Jesus' birth and his escape from Herod and his settling in Nazareth. And then, before Jesus' public ministry, you have John the Baptist's ministry. So all of the Gospels uh, begin with John. And John is the link between the Old Testament 
and the New Testament. Um, he's the last great prophet. He, he comes in the spirit of Elijah, who is one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. And as we'll discuss, uh, John's pedigree is Levite. Uh, his lineage is from the house of Levi, the house of Aaron. His father is a priest. Uh, you can imagine that when he was born, people assumed that he would be a priest, that he would serve in the temple. And, and yet, uh, instead of that, uh, uh, John declares Jesus, you know, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So instead of John the Baptist offering up a lamb to be sacrificed, he points to the lamb who ends all lamb sacrifices, Christ Jesus. He, he ends the Old Testament and begins the New Testament. Uh, when, when John the Baptist says, I uh, he must increase and I must decrease. He's not just talking about him himself, but he's talking about the his whole lineage. The Levites must decrease. Uh, their services are no longer needed. Uh, we have a new priest after the order of Melchizedek who must increase, and people must turn from the Levitical priesthood to the priesthood of Melchizedek, the priesthood that has uh, a priest from the tribe of Judah, uh, Christ Jesus, uh, who is our a prophet, priest, and king. So uh, the, uh, that's, the, that's the context of John the Baptist. He is the, as Jesus says, the greatest uh, born of, woman, of women. He is uh, a fantastic character. He's very important. Uh, we should listen to him. Uh, and, I mean, he really does, he, he embodies uh, what every pastor should be, what every prophet should be. And it's very fitting that Luke uh, honors him with the, the the account of his uh, pronunciation. Well, and, and even, I mean, just, I love the way you connected how John does show up at the beginning of every single gospel account. And and here, to, that he shows up at the beginning with the announcement of his birth, and then his birth, which will come later in this chapter, in, in all of this, John is serving as the forerunner of the Christ. I mean, I think, when I think of John, the forerunner of the Christ, I often think of his preaching, which will come later in Luke's gospel. But even in just the way that his life goes, he foreshadows Christ. And and I think we see that in this account as well, don't we? Yeah, we do. I mean, you look at the, in, these first couple chapters of, uh, of Luke are, are, are kind of long, too. All the chapters of Luke are a bit long. I felt bad I uh, assigned my, uh, uh, Wednesday school students in Bible reading, and when I first did it, I gave them, you know, a couple chapters a week. I'm like, oh, that's not so bad, which it isn't, I mean, even with Luke. But I mean, these are long chapters. But in the first chapter of Luke, you have very parallel uh, accounts of Jesus, of John's Annunciation, and then Jesus' Annunciation of John's birth. Well, then in, in Luke 2 is when you have Jesus' birth. Uh, it's the, the same angel. Uh, the angel Gabriel, who announces the birth. Uh, Gabriel, we first meet in Daniel chapter 8, and then he comes again in chapter 9. Uh, the word Gabriel uh, means man of God. Uh, he, and he has a, it seems that he has a certain uh, job. He tells of things that are to come. So uh, I guess I shouldn't compare him to, to uh, uh, Dickens, uh, you know, the ghost of, of what was it, the ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come or ghost of future, uh, whatever. I, uh, but uh, but he does talk about the future. So Daniel, he Daniel has these dreams that trouble him, these visions that trouble him, and Gabriel comes and 
and interprets that to them for him. And here, with both Zechariah and then the Virgin Mary, Gabriel uh, tells of what's going to happen, he announces a birth. In both cases, uh, they are scared, they're troubled. The, the Greek words are very similar that they use uh, for Zechariah and for Mary. Uh, Gabriel's first words are the same. He addresses them by name, and he says, do not be afraid. I, you know, and pretty much saying he's, he's coming with, with good news. Uh, they, they both are, uh, well, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, Zechariah questions how this may be, and he gets punished for it. Mary questions how this may be, and he answers her. <laughs> and then she says, let me according to your words. So uh, he seems to have more patience with Mary than he does with Zechariah. Uh, I, I always just assumed that, you know, the intent of Zechariah's heart was doubt, and Mary asks in sincerity of faith and just simply want, is, is, the, is, is the questioning of, of, uh, the, of the faith that wants to know more uh, than rather a questioning and doubt. Uh, but yeah, very, very similar uh, accounts. And, and it shows, too, this carries on in John's life. You know, John is, is ridiculed. Jesus talks about how John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon, and then Jesus comes eating and drinking, they call him a drunkard and a glutton. Um, John comes and they did whatever they wanted to him, and eventually he's arrested and his head's cut off. And then Jesus tells him, you know, so it will be for the Son of Man. This is how, how Jesus is going to go as well. So, uh, yeah, they are. Uh, John is the forerunner for Jesus and, and more than just his preaching. Uh, it, it's in his whole life, even before his life begins. So let's see how that happens in this text from Luke chapter 1. We're beginning now at verse 5, Luke 1, verse 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until, that, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. 
and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. That's our text for today. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. So, Pastor Price, as this text begins, Luke sets the scene for us, which we'll, we'll see him do this often in his gospel. He puts things in historical context for us. And the way he does that with this text is by mentioning the days of Herod, king of Judea. So just get us started there. When are the days of Herod, king of Judea? Uh, well, Herod, uh, king of Judea, began to reign, uh, they say, in 40 B.C., or as they say now, B.C.E., which is, I think, silly. But uh, in 40 B.C., and he uh, is reported to have died in the year 1 B.C., which might be, although there are some accounts that say 4 B.C., and uh, there was a time when they obviously thought that he died uh, later in A.D. So B.C. means before Christ. B.C.E. is what they say now, say before Common Era, which is just trying to, you know, not be Christian about it or not acknowledge the fact that Christianity uh, is the, the main you know, um, the main thing in, in the Western uh, history and culture. And then A.D. is uh, from the Latin uh, Anno Domini, which means uh, the year of our Lord. That's why you'll hear people say, in the year of our Lord, 2021, which is it. But the problem is, is Jesus and John, who's born six months earlier uh, than Jesus, uh, were born uh, in the year of uh, King Herod the Great, which this is the Herod that we're talking about. And uh, according to our history books, uh, most historians believe that he died in uh, in the year 1 B.C., one year before Christ, and some say uh, four years before Christ. Well, how does that work? So they say that there was an error in the whole A.D. B.C. So Jesus, uh, although 1 A.D. is supposed to be the year he was born, I think uh, most scholars would say something like he was born like, what, 4 A.D., some say, or what, 4 B.C., some say 6 B.C., uh, however it is. Uh, Jesus would have returned to Nazareth uh, after King Herod dies, so he would have returned probably in the year 1 B.C. or 1 A.D., uh, when the angel informs Joseph that, that, his, uh, that Herod had died. So, um, so that's, I mean, back then they didn't have the years B.C. and A.D., obviously. So uh, this is the way Luke is able to tell us, you know, over well, when he wrote it, it was less than 2,000 years ago, but uh, uh, an event two th- over 2,000 years ago, he's able to tell us when it happened because we have historical records of Herod. So this is a timeless way of telling us when it happened. It happened in the reign of Herod. Uh, and uh, Herod is a, he's called king of the Jews, uh, which again is why there's so much stirring when the Magi show up in Matthew chapter uh, 2 and say, where is he who's born king of the Jews? Uh, he was half Jewish. Uh, he's He's pretty much a, a puppet king from, from the Romans. Um, so he's, he's an evil man. Obviously, he, he slaughtered the children of, in Bethlehem uh, when Jesus was born. Uh, he, uh, he, he murdered some of his own children. But he also did some significant things uh, for the Jewish people. He restored the temple and was generous uh, to them. So, um, yeah, he's a bad guy, but God obviously used him. And, uh, and this is the setting that we have. So this event, when Gabriel showed up, I suppose would be around, I don't know, E.D. Uh, or, or B.C. Uh, 4, I don't know, something around there, B.C. 6, 
toward the end of, of Herod's reign, uh, about uh, a year before, a year and three months before Jesus is born, uh, something like that. So that that's the situation that Luke gives us at the context. But Herod, king of Judea, is not the main character in his account. Instead, he's going to focus very much on these other two that he mentioned, the priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. So what does Luke reveal about these this couple, and, and what what's important about these details he gives us? Uh, well, Zechariah, there are lots of Zechariahs in the Bible. I won't go through all of them. Uh, but this Zechariah, he is a priest, and he's of the division of Abijah, or however you, you pronounce that name, um, means my, my father is, is Yahweh, or the Lord. And his wife is uh, a daughter of Aaron. Uh, and uh, so they're, they're both descendants of Aaron. They're both descendants of Levi. And of course, if you know that the tribe of Levi was given no inheritance in the land of Israel. They are the priests. Uh, that he is from the division of Abijah, you can actually find uh, that name in the Old Testament a couple of places. They're not the same person. But the one this one is referring to is probably from Nehemiah uh, chapter uh, 12 and verses 4 and also 17. Uh, and what this is, these would be the priests, the Levites, who are coming out of the captivity. So these are the faithful ones who come back with... Uh, uh, Zerubbabel, and, uh, and and continue this service in the newly built temple. So he he has this pedigree, this lineage of being a Levite, uh, and, uh, and and so this would be his family. So they have a division; they they cast lots to, to determine who is part of that division who serves. Elizabeth, also a daughter of Aaron, she is a Levite, uh, and uh, her name, interestingly. That's the Greek way of saying Elisheba, uh, which was the name of Aaron's wife. And you can find that in, in Numbers chapter 6. So I just learned that uh, preparing for this, which I, I like learning new things. So that's, that's fun. What, is it, what does it mean when Luke tells us that they were both, this is verse 6, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? What is that, what's that saying about these two people? This means that they are faithful. Uh, we, we always have this problem when we hear the language of uh, people in the Bible, saints in the Bible, being called righteous, and that they walk blamelessly, and uh, find favor in the Lord, and, and statements like that. And the, the fallback position for most people is say, oh, these people weren't sinners. There's, there's really no, there's no way of supporting that when you look through Scripture. It's, there are very few characters, I shouldn't call them characters, there are very few historical figures in the Bible, uh, who are called, even the ones who are called righteous, who don't have sins also recorded in the Bible. There are a few where there really isn't anything that said bad about them, like, you know, Joseph, uh, the son of, uh, of, uh, Jacob, but even like Noah, Noah's called righteous. And then he ends up getting drunk later on, right? I mean, he's obviously a sinner. So this is not saying that Elizabeth and, uh, and Zechariah are sinless. What he is saying is that they are justified through faith. They have a righteousness that can only come through faith. And this is how they are blameless too. God passes over their transgressions. So this is talking about a faith which becomes very evident in the way that they live and, and in the way they respond. Uh, yes, Zechariah is going to be rebuked in this, uh, uh, in this story, but 
in the very same chapter, he's going to say some of the most beautiful words, the most beautiful song, one of the most beautiful songs ever written. Uh, so he pretty much spends his silence meditating on the scriptures and on the words of the angel Gabriel, and then he produces this beautiful song and say it. So they're faithful, they're looking for the com- coming Messiah, and they do receive this news of, of John uh, with great joy and with great faith. And you see that, we're not going to get into it today, but when uh, John is born and the name they give him and the insistence that he is the fulfillment of the promise of, of the, the angel. I mean, I think that's a very helpful reminder, and I think it should bring us comfort today. I mean, you know, to hear Zechariah and Elizabeth both called righteous and blameless in the way that they walk, not in the sense that they're sinless, but that they're faithful, I mean, this, this should comfort us as well, so that we know that our righteousness, too, does not depend on our sinlessness in the way that we act, but rather in the the righteousness that is bestowed upon us because of Christ Jesus received through faith. I mean, I'm just remembering the words of of Psalm 32, where David says, you know, what is the blessed man? The blessed man's the one whose sin is covered and it's it's forgiven. Zechariah and Elizabeth stand in that same righteousness, and and that's the righteousness we have as well. So that should be a, a comfort to us to hear these two called, labeled in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And also, in, in this very same pericope, Zechariah is rebuked by the angel, and that's a rebuke from God. But he doesn't cease to be uh, righteous. God chastises those whom he loves. He chastises his son. And even in, in the midst of chastisement, we remain righteous through faith. I mean, obviously, you can fall away from that righteousness uh, by committing open uh, and uh, impenitent sins. Uh, but, uh, yes, this is a very comforting thing. It's through faith, they have the righteousness that comes from Christ alone. And then there's one more detail that Luke gives us in verse 7. They're, they're childless because Elizabeth is barren, and now, as it turns out, they're both pretty old. So, I mean, tell us a little about what that means. And then just, I mean, in my mind, when I hear this, like, and knowing the Old Testament, like, light bulbs are, are turning on here. Like something big's about to happen when I find out there's a woman who's barren and an old couple. Like God's about to do something, it seems, when, when this is the detail that's given here. Yeah, God loves to do this. This, this foreshadows uh, Christ's birth. This foreshadows Christ's uh, resurrection from the tomb. He takes something that uh, is dead and he produces life from it. And we can think about Hannah. We can think about... Uh, Sarah, who was very old, uh, 90 years old and barren, was married for many years and having children. She's given a child. Rebecca, who was barren for 20 years and then has Esau and Jacob. Uh, so obviously they've been married for a long time and she has no children. Uh, this is a sign that Elizabeth is barren. And they also are advanced in years. How old they are, I don't know. Uh, in Numbers chapter, let's see, where, where is it? Is it Numbers chapter 8? Uh, it says that the priests are supposed to be in service from the time they're 25 years old until they're 50 years old. That 50 years old, they're able to keep watch, but they're not able to serve in the tabernacle anymore. Um, and I don't know if that would have pers- persisted to be the how they work. I mean, obviously, they don't always do things the way God says you're supposed to do. And maybe they get to the point where they have so many Levites, and so few people to do the work, and maybe there's a certain hierarchy, and you have an elderly 67-year-old man. But I don't even think you need to do that. I think it is possible that uh, Zechariah 
and his wife are 50 years old. This is like probably the last thing that he's doing as a, as a priest. He's, he's serving in, in great honor, and he's 50 years old, and 50-year-olds don't have kids generally. Right. Uh, and uh, maybe that would also make more sense that, uh, you know, then, you know, he's 70 when he dies and, and uh, John is an adult and goes off into the wilderness. So mm. I'm, that's just kind of a theory I have, but it does say in Numbers chapter 8, uh, verse 25, that uh, priests retired from their service in the, temp- in the tabernacle, which is then, of course, the temple later uh, at the age of 50. But this is, this is, this is how God works. It, this is him. Uh, he's going to have a, a virgin conceive, right? He's going to have a barren woman have a child. He's going to cause a dead man to uh, come out alive from a tomb. Uh, and that's what this foreshadows, mm. that it's God who gives life. Right, and that, that's certainly a theme that, as you said, we see it in the Old Testament, and we're going to see the, the fulfillment. I mean, the biggest resurrection—I mean, the resurrection is, is where we're obviously going here. So all these are, are God bringing life from from nothing, and we're seeing that here. And, and one thing—I mean, I think, too, this is maybe something that, that our culture today isn't as in tune with, but the fact that she's barren, that's a, a source of— of sorrow for Zachariah and Elizabeth. This is, I mean, and I think maybe we've lost that a little bit, that to, to be without child, I think we know it when, when it happens, but, but maybe it's something that our culture doesn't quite appreciate as much with, with Luke telling us Elizabeth was barren and they're both advanced in years. That's almost like, I don't know the, the, if you're, if there's a soundtrack playing here, the music gets sad when he, when he notes that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something very much missed in our, in our culture, uh, you see this. Gabriel says, "You know, do not be afraid uh, that your prayers have been heard." Well, what were his prayers for? His prayers are for a child. At the end of this pericope, Elizabeth says that uh, her uh, how, how is she say she her, her she has taken the Lord has taken away her reproach among the people. I mean, this is not having children was a sign that uh, God had judged them. It's kind of like you know when the disciples asked, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, okay, it's, it's a false notion. God can still love a barren woman, and we shouldn't, have, we shouldn't give a reproach to those who are barren. But uh, this isn't something that God... It's not like, how does God reward the poor, right, when they are despised? He gives them eternal life. He, you know, very rarely does he take a poor man and make him filthy, filthy rich on this earth, and there are a few examples of that in Scripture. Uh, but that's normally, he says, you know, your reward is in heaven. But here, no, he actually honors this woman who is sorrowful that she doesn't have this treasure by giving her this treasure here on earth. Because children are the only treasure that you have that you can actually bring to heaven with you. And this is something that uh, our culture has very much missed. And this is something that our, our uh, churches need to be very aware of. Christians in the Lutheran Church need to be aware of this, that we need to start being countercultural. Uh, that, and, and recognize that nowhere in Scripture does it give you the idea that children are not a blessing that married uh, couples should uh, welcome. And uh, when we spurn having children, we are uh, acting contrary to our faith, and we are harming the church. Uh, God wants to give us children, uh, and uh, he calls them a blessing. And when we do not welcome them, we are not acting the way God is teaching us to act in Scripture. And also, by the past few generations, 
behaving no differently than the way the unbelieving world has behaved by preventing children. I'm not even just talking about abortion, which obviously is evil, but just preventing children so that we can have more money and more time or whatever you know, justification we give ourselves. We've prevented children from being baptized. Our churches have shrunk. Uh, our birth rate is purposefully low. Uh, and that was a, an act of, of unbelief. And not only that, not only does it bring physically less children into the church, but the mentality what is the heritage you're giving your children? Well, you're teaching them that if you're going to not have children so that you can have a nicer retirement or give your kids nicer things that Jesus tells you not to store up, uh, then you're, you're, you're passing on to the next generation a materialistic worldview, which, again, is contrary to the church. So, then, so even if you do have children, but your mentality is still, well, I've chosen to have this many children, and this was my decision, not God's decision, because I know better. Uh, that mentality is going to pass on to your children. So even if you do have, have children, there's a good chance that they're not going to treasure the Word of God. They're going to treasure, you know, the money and the, the possession. So this is something, I, I, I'm speaking pretty bluntly, but uh, the Missouri, Lutheran Church of Missouri said needs to repent of this, and we need to change our attitude. Uh, children are a blessing from God. We should be encouraging uh, people who are getting married to have children to welcome them, and uh, it's okay to be poor and have a bunch of baptized kids and trust that God's going to take care of you. And, and we certainly see how the Lord gives the blessing through children. John, particularly in Luke chapter 1, we're going to keep more, look at more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Ryan here on KFU. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, January 10th. We are studying Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25 with Pastor James Preuss. He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa. Pastor Preuss, prior to the break, we are looking at the first couple of verses. Luke introduces the time. These are the days of King Herod. The two main players are Elizabeth and Zechariah. They are righteous through faith, but they are barren. And that's the setting into which the Lord will send Gabriel. Now, Zechariah is a priest. We already heard he's of the division of Abijah, and he's serving as a priest. That's the occasion for Gabriel's visit. Some of the, the details maybe need a little bit of explanation. He's His division's on duty. He's chosen by lot to actually go into the temple and burn the incense. What's, what's happening here? Well, in... Uh... Well, let's see, I'm looking at my notes. In Exodus chapter 30, that's right, uh, there is uh, there, there's the command for the burning of the incense, which is supposed to happen at twilight. So this is supposed to take place close to the time of the morning, the evening sacrifices. Uh, incense, I guess there's a practical purpose to it because it smells nice mm-hmm. and it's going to cover up you know, the bad smells of, that could happen with, with the sacrifice. But it, it's always associated with uh, prayer. Now, our prayers rise up to God uh, in, uh, as incense rises up. Uh, and uh, 
this is something that only priests can do. So you might remember there was King uh, Uzziah, who is a, a good king, but then at the end of his life, he becomes a leper. And the reason he becomes a leper is because he goes into the temple, he gets arrogant, he gets prideful, he goes into the temple with this incense to offer. And the priests say, no, you must not do that. And he just, you know, scoffs at them, and then he becomes a leper. And then his son ends up having to rule in his stead while he's all locked up because he's a leper and he's unclean. So no one can offer incense in the temple except for the priest. Uh, so if you have, you have the vision of what the temple looks like, you have the, the, temp, the altar for the burnt offering outside, and then inside you have these rows of tables and, uh, and can, uh, what were they now, lampstands, uh, like, like, who's five on each side, and everything's overlaid with gold and carvings and, and, and uh, just beautiful carving work. And then, uh, let's see here, it's 40 cubits long, and then, uh, so it's about 60 feet, and then you get to the end, and then there's this door overlaid with gold, and the end, other end of the door, you have the, the most holy place, which you only go in once a year. So, and then before this golden door, it's made of wood, but it's covered in gold, you have the altar for the incense. So that's where uh, Zechariah has gone into to offer this incense, and then outside of the temple, so 40 <clears throat> cubits behind him, behind this door, you have the people gathered around uh, worshiping. So that's, from my looking at it and my, you know, my understanding of the temple, that's, that's what we're, we're visualizing, and that's what the people are waiting for him to come out. And then all of a sudden, as he's offering up this incense, just all of a sudden, <clears throat> right there is the angel Gabriel standing there to his right, which is the right of the temple, of the, of the altar, and he's just... I mean, that would be really, really scary. You're in this place by yourself, and then all of a sudden there's a man there. And not just a man, but a very intimidating-looking man uh, who then says to him, do not be afraid. Uh, and you could talk a lot about this. It's very neat, because in the Holy of Holies, you have the two cherubim, right? The angels, mm. and you have the mercy seat there, and God is sitting on the mercy seat in the presence of God, because God dwells with the, the cherubim and the seraphim. And then all of a sudden you have an actual angel, not a carving of an angel, but an actual angel just there, who later says to him, I stand in the presence of God. Uh, so it's, it's a really neat thing uh, when you look at the, the pattern, the fact that the temple is a pattern of what's going on in heaven. Mm. And uh, it's like Zechariah is like in heaven almost. Mm. Uh, and you just all of a sudden you have this angel there. Yeah, I, I really like that. I mean, almost like, and this is, I don't know if this is impious to say it this, but almost like the temple itself comes to life for a moment. I mean, of course, that's where life is because God is dwelling there. But like, you know, the, the carvings of the cherubim, like, I don't know. I I hope that don't take this the wrong way, but but something it's like it comes off the wall suddenly, and boom, there's there's Gabriel because he's really been there all along. But suddenly Zechariah gets to see the reality, almost like you know Isaiah is caught up into God's throne room, and there's the seraphim flying around, and and now it's like heaven here instead of instead of Zechariah being transported to heaven, now heaven comes to earth. So Gabriel talks yeah. to to Zechariah. It's a really really cool cool picture. Yeah, you made you made me think of Dickens again with the. Uh... With uh, the door knocker turning into Marlon's face, so that's not what you're saying. That's no, that's that's not what's happening, right? But but that I mean that's kind of the but yeah, it's like, I mean he's he's 
seeing this all along when he's in the temple. He would have seen these these cherubim, and now he's literally face to face with Gabriel, who speaks to him. And and so you, yeah. as you said, he starts, "Don't be afraid." This would have been a very scary moment for Zechariah. And and the message is, "Your prayer has been heard." I want to talk a little bit more about that. You you mentioned this, and this is something that I've I've thought about. You know, on the one hand, your prayer has been heard, and so you're going to have a child. It, it would have made sense for Zechariah to have been praying for a child regularly. I mean, although maybe by this time in his life, he's not. But I, I also wonder, and, and I don't remember who told me this, who pointed this out to me, but I wonder if the, the context here would indicate that the prayer that's been heard is the prayer that he's offering there in the temple, the prayer that all the people gathered around the temple are also participating in, which would have been almost like the the liturgy of the church that they're praying for the Lord to fulfill the promise of a of a coming savior. You know, all those promises that are in the Old Testament about the Christ is coming, the people would have been praying for that at this moment. And so here comes Gabriel to Zechariah and says, Your prayer's been heard, not just or not even so much the prayer for a child for him and Elizabeth, but ultimately the prayer that the Savior's going to come into the world. Gabriel says that prayer's been heard. And the Lord's going to start answering it by sending a son to you, which, I mean, it's almost like Zechariah then is he, I don't know, two for one. At the, you know, his, his prayer for a child is answered at the same time that the prayer for the Savior coming into the world is being answered. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I, it, I think that all works out well. I like that. Uh, obviously, all the prayers of the faithful are heard. None of them drop to the ground without reaching the ears of our Heavenly Father. And uh, and it is obviously all brought together. Obviously, both Elizabeth and Zechariah prayed for a child. They probably prayed for a son specifically. I mean, because there's uh, uh, you know honor in that. I mean, maybe with different ideas. I mean, him being a priest, wanting his son to be a priest. Uh, and uh, but here they have all of their prayers answered in in, in one. You have the, the promise of a child. You have. Uh, the forerunner of Christ, you have the actual Christ, all these things that they're praying for. So yeah, I think that he's saying the prayers that he's currently praying with the answers going up is being offered, the prayers of the people outside of the temple who are praying, I think those prayers have been answered. Uh, and I also think that the prayer that he spoke, uh, you know, from, the, from his wedding day on, that God would bless him with the child, has finally been answered. And I think it's really neat, too, because he obviously has kind of given up on it, which which happens. God answers prayers sometimes that we, um, you know, after we after we uh, have given up on them. Not not to excuse giving up on them, but uh, God's timing is not ours. So as Gabriel then announces what this good news of the prayer being heard. Elizabeth's going to bear you a son, and then the first detail we get is his name, and then there's going to be joy and gladness. Well, that I mean that that makes sense. Of course, there's going to be joy and gladness at the birth of a child. So let, let me let's let's start talking about what is what's so great about this news of the birth of of John. Uh, well, what's what's so great about the the, the birth uh, of John is what we've been talking about before that he's the forerunner of Christ and Christ is the, the one thing that they've constantly been praying for. He is the savior. He is the redeemer. He's always going to give them peace. And we can go on about all the different sufferings they have. It, it doesn't seem that anyone fully understands what the Christ has come to do. And there's a lot of confusion, you know, people thinking, Oh, you'll throw off the Romans or this, that, or the other thing. Uh, but I think the most pious are talking about someone who's going to save them from their sins, which we see in uh, the uh, the Bandu Kamus that uh, that Zechariah sings in the same chapter later on, 
that that does need to bring the forgiveness of sin. But it's it's really wonderful how he says, let's see which verse is it here. He says, "You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth." So, um, like my wife and I are gonna have a baby uh, uh, soon, uh, and uh, we're very. This is gonna be such a wonderful, joyous time. There's, there's nothing more happy, no, no happier feeling I have than when my uh, wife uh, gives birth to a child. It's so wonderful. Uh, but then he says, and many will rejoice at his birth. Well, obviously that's true too. I mean, you can, you probably have known someone who maybe didn't think they could have a child. They've been married for a long time. You know, they prayed for a child. And then all of a sudden after 10, 15, even 20 years, they have a child, how miraculous it is. And we definitely see this. People gather around. They're rejoicing. They want to name him after his father, right? And then Zechariah says, no, his name will be John, or he writes it. Um, but then later on, about 30 years later or so, Jesus says, you know, uh, there's no one greater born of woman. Jesus references his birth as something that we should rejoice over. And we Christians continue to rejoice today. We rejoice at the birth of John today, uh, even though he's already lived and died and gone to heaven because of the greatest sermon that was ever preached uh, outside of from Jesus. Behold the Lamb, God takes away the sin of the world, the man who prepared the way of the Lord, and who, is, who commands all other preachers, is the example of all other preachers, to not be a reed shaking the wind, but to uh, raise up the valleys and the lower of the hills, proclaim the Lord's coming, uh, and, and to not stop. Uh, so we are so blessed to know the birth of John the Baptist, to know John the Baptist, preaching lives on today. What is the detail that Gabriel gives concerning John's diet? He says, and, and we know John for his diet well when he shows up on the scene preaching, but here it's particularly he's not supposed to drink wine or strong drink. Instead, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What, is, what does that indicate? Well, it, this uh, indicates that he is, and I don't know if, it, if this means that he is uh, necessarily a, a, a Nazarite, uh, but it's certainly the pattern of a Nazarite. The Nazarites would, would take a vow where they would not, for a certain time, they would have no wine or, or strong drink. Um, so there, there's that indication that he is being separated when you have these distinctions of meats and drinks. Uh, and this is that word holy that people often misunderstand. To be holy, to be consecrated, to be sanctified means to be set apart. Uh, so God is setting him apart for his special purpose. Uh, he's going to go out into the wilderness. He's literally, physically going to be set apart to proclaim the Word of God. But it also, ju- also shows us just the seriousness of this. He's not just a raving madman. He's not a drunkard just shouting out nonsense. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, St. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I know we Lutherans, you know, we like our Lutheran beverages, as they call it. We, we, we aren't pietists. We, we can drink beer and not sin. Uh, but alcohol is dangerous. Getting drunk is wicked. It's, it's continually mentioned as a wicked vice in, in Scripture. And uh, when you're filled with alcohol, uh, you become a fool, and you do not leave room for being filled with the Holy Spirit. So make no doubt about it. Uh, John the Baptist is filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time of uh, his conception. In the womb, he leaps when he hears the voice of the Virgin Mary announcing the birth of or the, you know, the coming birth of Christ. Uh, so it's, it's a good example for us, but also this is not a raving madman. This is not a drunkard. He speaks from the Holy Spirit. 
Now, his work is described in verses 16 and 17 as one who will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord. To, he will be, he'll go before him, before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And again, this matter of turning is, is very, very evident. What, what does Gabriel say to Zechariah about the work of John in his ministry? Well, he's going to be bringing sinners to repentance. That's like that awesome hymn, uh, Comfort, Comfort Ye My People. I hope everyone sings on Sunday. I sang it last Sunday. We should sing it all the time. But yeah, he's turning sinners to repentance. The word uh, repent in the Old Testament, so you know, if you, when you learn your Old Testament, uh, when you go to seminary, it's one of the first words you learn. And uh, it means, it can mean to repent or to turn or to return. And, and that's what he's talking about. It's a very physical word that you're changing from what you're doing. Uh, so he's going to change them from their idolatry. He's going to change them from their unbelief. He's going to change them from their sexual immorality. He's going to turn their faces from going the way of the world to going the way of Christ. And this is what he does. We see this when he preaches, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He calls them broods of vipers. He tells the soldiers to stop exhorting money. He tells the tax collectors, stop collecting more than you are authorized to. Uh, he, you know, he, he tells people, who, if you have more than you need, give to those who are poor. This is how he speaks. He actually talks about bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, so it, it, uh, that's how he prepares the way of the Lord, is by bringing people to be sorry for their sins. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who looks and takes away the sins of the world. That's repentance. Uh, repentance has, uh, has two parts. First, that we are contrite, that we're sorry for our sins. And the second is faith. So when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's preaching repentance. He's saying, don't look over there. Don't look at me. Look there. Look over there. Behold. Look. Jesus, turn your heads. Turn your bodies. Follow him. And his disciples literally do it. They turned from following John, and they go and they walk and they follow Jesus. And Jesus gains uh, disciples. So, uh, it, and this is what's foreshadowed in, in the scriptures. You have this in Isaiah 40, uh, the, the, the raising of the valleys and the lowering of the hills. This is talking about repentance. Uh, and in Malachi chapter uh well, I guess we're going to get to that in uh, chapter 17. Do we already read 17 where we talk about turning the hearts of... No, go, go ahead uh, with, with verse yeah, yeah. 17, yeah. The, the turning of uh, the hearts of fathers uh, to the children. Uh, this is a quote from Malachi chapter 4, in verses 5 and 6, where he says that, you know, behold, I will send uh, uh, my, uh, Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he, t- you know, then he uses that same phrase of turning the hearts of fathers to their children. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, talking about repentance, talking about love. You can think about that post-communion uh, uh, prayer where it says that we pray that by this sacrament that we would increase our love towards you and in fervent love towards one another. Uh, faith unites generations, uh, and it brings us to the faith of our fathers. And uh, it, it's, it's truly just a wonderful thing. This brings us back to the Old Testament. This unites the Old Testament to the New Testament. They're not two separate books. It's one Bible. It's united. And John is kind of like that link. He's like glue mm. that joins it together. It really is, uh, is, is wonderful. Mm. So Gabriel gives this good news to Zechariah, and Zechariah, very famously, he doubts. He says, how shall I know this? And you, you mentioned this earlier, Pastor Preuss, that similarly, Mary's going to question Gabriel. And and this is something that's always kind of, I've wondered about too. Recently, this was kind of the way that I tried to, to explain it. So imagine 
Imagine that you're without a vehicle, like your, your van's in the shop, and you tell your kids, we're going to go out to eat tonight. And one of them asks you, Dad, how do I know you're telling the truth? Our van's in the shop. The other kid asks you, how's that going to happen? How are we going to get there? Because our van's in the shop. And, and I think the, the, that's the way that I try to, to maybe get a hold of the difference between Zachariah and Mary. Zachariah is the one who's saying, how do, how do I know you're telling the truth, Gabriel? Mary's the one who's asking, how's this going to happen? Because it seems kind of unusual, to put it mildly, that a virgin would give birth to a son. Where, so Zachariah, and I think that's the way you, you kind of explained it, that Zachariah asks in doubt. Mary's got faith that's looking for more information. And that, that was one example that I put together recently that I at least helped me try to explain the difference between Zachariah and Mary. Yeah, I mean, it's like the difference between Zwingli and Martin Chemnitz. <laughs> like, Oryx Zwingli explains away, because it's like, oh, how on earth can Christ's body and blood be in the Lord's Supper? How can, you know, uh, I know it's, a, it's a Kelvin, he says, you know, it's a finite connection in infinite. But, you know, Zwingli, Kelvin, whatever. They question this. And then you have Chemnitz, who writes a book literally just a bunch of questions and answers. <laughs> and he's like, he's, this is the most inquisitive guy in the history of the world. He's just incredibly curious, uh, and he's curious about the Word of God, and he's constantly seeking, asking God more questions. I mean, if Chem, I mean, Chemnitz is in heaven right now, sitting, uh, you know, at God, at Jesus' knees, and just asking more and more and more questions, and <laughs> Jesus is just delighted answering them. And he said, isn't this wonderful? that you want to know more. And I think Mary's there, too, pondering it all in her heart. I mean, uh, I think that's really the, the, the difference between someone questioning in disbelief and questioning in, in faith and asking to learn more. And I don't know, I mean, granted, I'm not you know, the best exegete in the world, but I don't even know if you're going to be able to look at the words in Greek and be able to say, well, this is what this word means, this is what this word means. I think it's just in context and by the reaction of Gabriel. Gabriel knows that Zechariah is asking in doubt, and he sees that Mary's asking in sincerity of faith. She wants to know. She said, this is wonderful, but how will this be? And then he, he, asks, he answers her, uh, ready to teach her, because she's ready to learn. Mm. So af- after listening to Zechariah's doubt, Gabriel's words are, are pretty uh, straightforward. He says, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And, and says, hey, you're going to be silent, which seems to fit the crime. You, you doubted the word of God, so you will not be able to speak your word. Pastor Price, I'm, I'm just summarizing here, because we got about five minutes left on the morning, and there's there's several details to to consider. I mean, I think we know how the, the account goes, and, and you mentioned earlier about the, the matter of Elizabeth conceiving, and then you know she keeps herself hidden and the reproach that's taken away. So, I mean, help us to, to pick out those details that are most important from these last verses with about five minutes left. Okay, well, I think the big thing to point out is that everything that Gabriel says is true. From the moment he says it, the first thing he says is, uh, you, don't, you won't listen to the Word of God, then your Word will be silent. And it happens. And there's delay. Like, this isn't that long of a conversation. Why is this this delay? Probably because Zechariah is in shock. He's stunned. He doesn't know what to do. And then he realizes he can't talk. And then he goes out there thinking, well, how am I going to explain to these people this amazing vision? And I can't even talk. He doesn't know sign language. He starts, like, you know, learning it, I guess, after that. Uh, uh, so that comes true. And then, immediately after this, we have uh, the, the fact that Elizabeth does conceive. Uh, so Gabriel's word is true immediately, and this shows that God's word is true. Uh, the, the questioning of Gabriel, he says, I stand before God, 
you know, and I came to give you, speak to you good news from God. This isn't just simply because Gabriel is an angel. It's because he's speaking God's word. And when God's word is spoken, we should listen to it, even if it's by, you know, some pastor with some Midwestern accent uh, who doesn't look like an angel. Uh, we should listen to it. Jesus says, in, it's recorded in Luke, that wh- whoever receives you receives me, whoever rejects you rejects me. Uh, and uh, so we should listen to the word of God and know that if we don't listen to the word of God, if we doubt God's word, well, then God's going to silence us too. And uh, by, by God's grace, Zechariah's uh, silence was, was shortened. And of course, we'll learn later that uh, he's able to speak again after the word of God is fulfilled and he has faith in it, that John is born. He names him John. Um, Elizabeth hiding herself you know, I asked that, that, that question in my note, and I'm not, I, I, I'm not even 100% sure why. I, I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, a cultural thing at that time. Maybe there is a, a certain amount of shame. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was reading in Jeff's commentary, and he says that Elizabeth is the first one, or not Elizabeth, Mary is the first one to discover that she's pregnant, uh, which maybe that, that's the case. And, uh, uh, I mean, he, he would know better than I would. Uh, but I guess to, to, to put it all uh, together, it ends with Elizabeth saying that the Lord has taken her reproach away. And I already talked about children being a gift from God, which is an important point. Uh, but he hasn't just taken away Elizabeth's reproach through the birth of John the Baptist. He's taken away all of our reproach. Uh, John's known to be this law preacher, but he's not a law preacher as some like Puritan. He's not, uh, you know, like Jonathan Edwards trying to terrify us. Uh, and he's not works righteous. He comes as a law preacher so that we can turn to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, this is the, the, the most exciting birth outside of the birth of Jesus that's recorded in the Bible. Uh, this is the man who uh, preached in preparation for Jesus 2,000 years ago, and he still preaches today through Holy Scripture. Uh, the birth of John the Baptist is a sign from God that, that he not only does he love Zechariah and Elizabeth, not only did he hear their prayers, but he hears our prayers, and he loves us, and he wants to do good to us. Uh, so, uh, you know, wonderful, wonderful prayer could be today. Uh, very beautiful, and I think people should be excited to hear about the birth of Jesus, uh, the, the Annunciation of Jesus, the birth of John, uh, Zechariah's song, Mary's song, uh, Luke chapter 1 is a very beautiful chapter of, of the Bible. Pastor James Preuss is pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Ottumwa, Iowa, helping us today with Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. Pastor Preuss, thanks for being our guest today. Hey, thank you so much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.